so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. When you're wearing your face mask, do you do you working. do you take it off to spit something out? Well, what would I have to spit out? Like a like a hair. Like you just you just had a hair in your mouth. What? Well, I don't often have hairs in my mouth, especially well, if I'm wearing a mask. you just have one in your mouth. I'm not wearing a mask though. I know, and you spit it out in front of me. <laughs> it's very classy. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week is my, oh, how shall I describe him? Your Ed McMahon. My Ed McMahon. Co-host, Brent Leatherwood. I wonder what percentage of our audience actually knows who Ed McMahon is. Yeah, it just depends on the year that they were born. I know who Ed McMahon is, though I never saw him on The Tonight Show. I wouldn't have been able to say that he was on The Tonight Show. Really? Yeah. I knew You're Johnny Carson enough? was. You're not old enough to have seen Johnny Carson? I mean, I, I'm like two years younger than you, I'm sure, but I just never watched The Tonight Show. I mean, I know you're Tonight old, Show. but I, I just... Mm-mm. Not as old as you are. But <laughs> let's not offend people listening who might be older than us. Oh, no, no, just just you. Not anybody <laughs> not else who's in their else. 30s is not old. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let's go ahead and talk about what has been happening lately. And, you know, usually we start off talking about what the ERLC has been featuring this week. But we want to talk about an important development in the life of the ERLC, and that is our sexual abuse assessment. And so, Brent, why don't you start us off talking about that? Yeah, Lindsay. So this was, it was a big development, not just for the ERLC, but for the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's because uh, you all may recall last September, we talked about how the ERLC was handling a sexual abuse assessment motion that was given to us from the Southern Baptist annual meeting that occurred in, in June of last year. And our trustees said, hey, let's do some additional work on this and come back to us in February at our, our next trustee meeting with some additional recommendations. And I'm just so pleased to say that our trustees voted on and affirmed uh, the recommendations to help move forward the, the project that is going to be coming out of, of this motion. And this was covered in the Tennessean, and the title is Sweeping Southern Baptist Convention Sexual Abuse Assessment Moves Forward with Trustees Vote. And let me just say, we have a great board of trustees here at the ERLC. Absolutely. So um, it was— We're very fortunate to have uh, the board that we have. Yes, we are. So this is how the article opens up. Trustees of the Southern Baptist Convention's public policy arm approved key recommendations for a sexual abuse assessment within the Nashville-based denomination. 
the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission will hire Guidepost Solutions, a third-party firm, to conduct the assessment and engage a sexual abuse task force within the SBC to serve in an advisory role. Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission trustees unanimously voted to approve the recommendations for Guidepost and the task force at a special meeting on Thursday. And this is what Brent said. This is going to be a convention-wide project, and we will have the privilege of stewarding it forward. That's right. And so just to fill out some additional details, uh, the purpose of this assessment is to, quote, receive and assess over the next three years both reports of sexual abuse and allegations of mishandling abuse from voluntary participating churches, victims, and witnesses. Because participation in the assessment is strictly voluntary, the assessment will not be exhaustive, but rather aimed to provide broad-spectrum data and analysis on rates of abuse allegations, mishandling of those allegations and patterns uh, related to them. And, you know, this is very different from the SBC-EC investigation that is ongoing and does involve Guidepost Solutions. This is much more cooperative in nature. Uh, We want this to be an assessment that churches feel ownership of and feel that they can cooperate with because ultimately we all know that abuse is an issue. And we know it's an issue that uh, churches are dealing with in, in different circumstances. We need to, if we are truly going to confront it and end it, we need to know the size and the scope and the breadth and the depth of the problem. And we know just from the reporting of the Houston Chronicle uh, from uh, just a few years ago that essentially in Texas alone, uh, there were 700 instances where the Houston Chronicle was able to detail instances of abuse. And we just felt the the sponsor of this motion, uh, Dr. Todd Bankert, pastor from uh, Indiana, his heart behind this and, and our heart to carry it out is to say, let's let's take an honest look at all the available information that might be out there. So that way we can truly present it to the full Southern Baptist Convention and say, okay, this is what we're up against. This is an evil that we're up against. And uh, it's going to take all of us leaning in together cooperatively, which is what we do as Baptists, to bring it to an end. And in some ways, the RLC, our audience knows, we've been working on this issue for years with the Caring Well Initiative and the Caring Well Challenge, and we are so thankful to have uh, been able to produce those assets that have helped a number of churches. We think this assessment will ensure that we're able to take that to the, the next level and really produce uh, additional resources, additional assets uh, that that will help equip our churches and inform our pastors and listen to and respect uh, the voices of survivors uh, that that have been too often neglected. Uh, they have been ignored, and we want them to know you are absolutely a vital part of this process. Well, it's another important step in making our churches safe for survivors, and safe from abuse. And following along those lines of that development is an article that we featured on our site this week by Brad Hambrick, and it's titled, Why Is It So Hard to Have Constructive Conversations About Abuse? And this was in light of a dust-up on social media. An article was written by Kevin DeYoung about false allegations of abuse and the presumption of guilt Uh, instead of the presumption of innocence. And Brad writes us in response. Brad has 
is a counselor out of the Summit Church in North Carolina. He has been so thoughtful in the area of sexual abuse. He helped with our Caring Well initiative and our Caring Well curriculum. He is a go-to guy when it comes to caring for survivors of abuse and those who have been through trauma. And so he just gives us a way to think about this thoroughly and um He talks about where we should start the conversation, and he points out the reality that false allegations of abuse are really a very small number. It's really a minuscule number that it is not very common for that to happen. So I would encourage you to read the Tennessean article that we talked about, um, telling you more about moving forward with the sexual abuse assessment, and then read Brad Hambrick's article to help you to have constructive conversations about sexual abuse. That's right. And just uh, kind of concluding this little section on on the assessment, the motion that was given to us, it requires us to provide three major reports as a part of our entity ministry assignment. That's the report that we actually submit to the convention for the annual meeting each year. As a part of our ministry report, it asks us to provide updates on this assessment as it moves forward. So we're certainly going to do that. At the same time, because we do feel this is uh, such an important resource as we develop it, uh, it will be such an important resource for the the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to provide regular updates on the progress it is making. Uh, So later today, actually, I'll be shooting uh, a video just kind of formally announcing it and announcing where individuals may go to to find uh, resources for this assessment. And uh, so we're going to do that pretty routinely, if not every month, actually, maybe even even more than that, um, because we, we do want to make sure that our churches Our local associations, our state conventions, and our fellow entities are well aware of the progress that is being made on this front. So it was a busy week uh, for for those of us who who work here at the commission, uh, but it was a a good week. This was, uh, not to overstate, but this was kingdom honoring work, uh, I truly believe. Well, we've had many faithful co-workers in the past and present who have worked so hard in this area, and we give each other a hard time on the podcast, but Truly, you should be thankful that your public policy arm, the ERLC, is being led in this interim period by Brent Leatherwood and that he is leading out so clearly, so intentionally, so faithfully in this area. So we are definitely thankful to have you at the helm, uh, especially when it comes to this topic and this important issue. Thank you. It's a team effort. Appreciate you. It is a team effort, but you have to have a fearless leader. So we're thankful that it's you. Uh, I just want to highlight two other pieces real quickly that we have on our site today. Uh, One is uh, by our staff, and it's titled, 15 Questions for Christians to Ask About Their Social Media Engagement. This actually ties in well to the article that I mentioned by Brad Hambrick, because uh, his article was in response to a dust-up on social media. And if you are on social media for any amount of time, you know that it thrives on controversy and dust-ups and oftentimes hate and outrage. And that is not how we should act as Christians. And so these 14 questions will enable you to just take a deep breath, pause, and evaluate your motives for what you are doing on social media for um, 
evaluate whether or not you should even remain on social media if it's constructive for you, for your heart, for growing in Christlikeness and for the kingdom. And to look at, okay, if you're going to stay on social media, how can you use that small platform in order to glorify God and in order to build up those that you are communicating with? And then finally, we have an article by our colleague, Jill Wagner, and it is titled, Richard Land on Southern Baptist's History of Abortion Advocacy and the Future of the Pro-Life Movement. And this one is really interesting to me. Richard Land is a former president of the ERLC who has done so much work in the pro-life arena. And you may not know this, but Southern Baptists do have a history of advocating for abortion. There was a pro-abortion resolution that was adopted back in the day, and men like Richard Land and women uh, did a lot of work to move our hearts toward life and toward advocating for the dignity and the right to life for every single individual, no matter how young, and by that I mean in the womb at the moment of conception. So we are thankful for the legacy of people like Richard Land. We're thankful that he is kind of like a history textbook and talking, and and Jill was just able to have a great conversation with him that I think will shed light on the Southern Baptist Convention and our history when it comes to the pro-life movement. These sorts of historical pieces are always fascinating to me, honestly, in multiple contexts, but particularly when it looks at the history of the SBC. And this article just, it's amazing to see how we have changed as a convention of churches. And it just kind of reminds me individually and then as a as a group of churches, we, we are still being renewed and still being uh, brought closer, I think, to what God truly is calling us to. Uh, and so whether that is an issue like, you know, in our beginning with slavery and, and not seeing the dignity uh, of those who were not white and ultimately leading to uh, the historic apology uh, for that in 1995. And, and that continues through today with our racial reconciliation efforts. Even on, on this issue, life, we haven't just been the pro-life people that we can now uh, say that we are in terms of our advocacy for the preborn. And so these sorts of looks back uh, at our history are just, I think, truly fascinating. And I think they also inject, I mean, for me at least, when I read through them, they inject a little bit of humility to say, okay, where where else maybe uh, are we not getting things right? Where else uh, do we have blind spots? Where else is there something that needs to be rectified, uh, that needs to be brought before the Lord and say, you know, Father, are we actually getting this right? And so that's that's the way this this piece. I'm so thankful that that you originally had the idea to do it, and that Jill uh, was was able to to spend a little bit of time with Dr. Land to get his thoughts about this. Because you know, one thing I've noticed about uh, our previous leaders, whether it's Dr. Land, Dr. Moore, they have these giant vaults of historical memory that I'm I'm very jealous of. They seem to be able to recall things from Baptist life that, man, I, I hope I can develop that someday. I, I don't know that I will be able to, but I, I just love when we get to, to talk with those who have uh, come before us and understand a little bit more about our history. So, Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that the work that we're in the midst of and doing today throughout the church, it stands on the shoulders of other people. Yep. And they've mm. 
they've made mistakes. You know, they have um, done things that we might not agree with or done things the way that we might not agree with or whatever, but they paid the way for us to be able to do what we're doing today. And that will be hopefully said of us in the future as well. And so it's, it is only right to give credit where it is due. And you're right. It is amazing how some of these men and women can just recall things and just have such a file folder in their brain. Maybe they're just allowed to use more of their brain than we are. You know, what's scientists talk about the reality that we only use a certain low, low, low percentage of their brain. I would like my brain to be activated to the full, but you know, whatever. Uh, Okay, so we are thankful to be able to cover these important issues. We're thankful to be able to work on these issues as the Lord enables us and gives us grace and power and strength and opens doors. And and we just pray that, you know, in the future, we will look more like Christ and we will have a witness for Christ that is powerful, that people would see our good works and glorify our God in heaven. For now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. And now moving into our culture section this week, you know, we've already discussed some goings on at the ERLC. So what has been going on in the larger culture around us? That's right. So uh, just a couple stories that we'll highlight this week. And a lot of eyes internationally are focused on the border between Ukraine and Russia. We've talked about this now for for several weeks. And there are two reports here uh, from ABC News that I would want to highlight. The United States believes that Russia now has probably as many as 190,000 troops, including Russian-backed separatist forces, according to a U.S. envoy, in and around Ukraine amid fears that Russian capabilities of a full-fledged invasion continue to grow. Quote, we assess that Russia probably has massed between 169,000 to 190,000 personnel in and near Ukraine as compared with about 100,000 on January 30th. Why is this uh, so important? Well, because last week there were some reports that came from Russia that suggested they were actually pulling back troops from the border. And what the U.S. intelligence agency, what other officials in Europe are actually saying is, no, that's not accurate. More satellite, more intel is suggesting that actually additional forces are being brought to the border. So much so that uh, within The next few days, President Biden indicates that the Russian invasion may actually begin, and that comes to us from from CNN. President Joe Biden warned Thursday morning a Russian attack on Ukraine could begin in the coming days, casting a new incursion into the country as all but certain, and warning Moscow could stage events in the lead-up to generate a pretext for war. I read in some other areas that there's even suggestion that they might use a a fake attack with cadavers uh, to make it look like the Ukrainians have themselves escalated things. I mean, this is is starting to get very uh, serious. And going back to ABC News, in response to all this, the United States is selling Poland $6 billion of tanks and more military aid. The announcement came as U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin met with his Polish counterpart in Warsaw to discuss concerns regarding the massive buildup of Russian troops near Ukraine, which U.S. and NATO officials say position Moscow for an imminent invasion. Poland is a key Eastern European ally to the U.S. and a fellow member of NATO. And so all of this is important because President Biden has been very clear. Uh, Our NATO allies, like Poland, uh, we're going to make sure that they are protected in any sort of Russian offensive. 
Ukraine is not a member of NATO, though it has expressed its desire to join NATO. And that's actually part of why uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin is wanting to take over uh, Ukraine and invade Ukraine to prevent it uh, from uh, joining NATO. So he is very concerned about NATO being uh, on the borders of Russia. And that is not a justified reason uh, for uh, violating uh, the the sovereign status of uh, a neighboring country, but that is certainly not factoring into Putin's decisions here. And so, you know, by the time that uh, we record this podcast next week, uh, we may actually be talking about Russian forces actively in uh, Ukraine, which is just – this is not good. You know, we should be praying for peace. Uh, the administration has and continues to conduct uh, all sorts of negotiations with allies to try and stave this off. And ultimately, I, I don't know if it will be successful, but we we do need to continually be in prayer for our president, uh, officials at the State Department who who are are working very hard to try and uh, head this off. And praying that uh, Putin's heart would be changed because uh, we know the Lord holds king's hearts in his hands. You know, if you're like me and you're not quite sure the the history of this, you're not clear about that, I listened to a briefing episode from a week ago or two weeks ago. I'll link to it uh, with Dr. Moeller about Russia and the importance of this and how we got here. So it's just some history um, that was interesting. And of course, some of my history, I'm just, I confess to you, I'm just not good with history, although I've become more interested in it. So some of the the Russian history, like the Romanovs, those names I recognize from movies like Anastasia, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I don't even know how accurate it is. So, um, uh, so I think of some of those songs in my head, but it's very interesting and it is a serious situation. And as Brent and as Dr. Moeller has reminded us on the briefing, you know, Christians are more apt to pay attention to what's going on locally or in our even in our own country, but not internationally. And, you know, we don't have to be in the know of all the things because we're not made to carry all that knowledge, but we do live in a day and age when we can at least read up a little bit on what's going on so that most importantly, as Brent reminded us, we can know how to pray. That's right. Okay, and for the other story that we're going to highlight today, uh, obviously the coronavirus and uh, the ways that our nation is is dealing with it is still very much in the news. Thankfully, cases are continuing to fall from this uh, most recent Omicron variant. Uh, but the Axios, the team at Axios, they have a look at what they call America's rapid yet unequal pandemic off-ramp. And so from their story, America is accelerating towards a return to pre-pandemic life, though millions of people aren't yet comfortable abandoning pandemic precautions or they feel downright threatened by the rapid reversal. For the majority of Americans, particularly vaccinated ones, the virus no longer poses a severe threat to their health, at least for now. But that isn't uniformly true. Businesses and policymakers across the country are removing masks and vaccine mandates, loosening COVID protocols, and encouraging more in-person interaction. Governors, including from many blue states, are lifting mask mandates, as are some school districts. Washington, D.C. has also lifted its vaccine mandate, and California earlier this week announced plans for the pandemic's endemic phase, 
endemic is a classification that would begin to make COVID uh, viewed more like the flu. It's something that is basically always going to be with us. There are vaccines and treatments that are developed for it, but individuals will have to determine uh, how they want to handle this basically on an annual basis, uh, just like we do with the flu. Uh, so that is an important uh, distinction. And, and if we are truly at that phase where COVID is being seen by policymakers and health experts as endemic, well, then that may mean that we are getting close to the end of, of the pandemic, which I think all of us, I mean, gosh, it feels like since we began this podcast, we've been talking about COVID. And so- um, Well, we have. Yeah, we have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we actually have. Uh, so I, I know that for many of us, that would be a welcome relief. Yeah, you know, it it is pretty crazy. I we have gone, my husband and I so far, and I guess our two kids, uh, we've gone these two years without catching COVID. Has your family gotten it yet? Some one member of your family. Yeah, our daughter tested positive uh back in the fall. Our doctor said at that time, he's like, given, you know, that y'all are together, he's like, you should just assume that you all got it. You bet you didn't exhibit any symptoms. No, I, I, well, I did have a cough for about 36 hours. Oh, okay. Yeah, we haven't gotten it. All that to say, we're still wearing masks, but I don't even know why. So <laughs> I don't know if we're going to just stop. I don't know if it's because we just... Now, we did wear a mask here in our state because we were having an outbreak. Right. But at this point, I'm like, do we stop? Are we just used to it? We have two small kids who can't get the vaccine yet because it's not approved. But they are largely, they do okay. So what do we do? Because if we stop wearing masks, we're just basically going to get it because it's endemic. So we're trying to make those decisions. And, you know, is it time to go back to normal life yet? Which I'm definitely ready for normal life. I think a lot of families are having yeah. that exact same discussion in, you know, a lot of different parts of the country. Yeah, we're definitely some of the only holdouts, though. You kind of feel like the person with two heads because <laughs> we've got our masks on, you know, at church and there's barely anyone else wearing them. I'm like, oh, what do we do? But well, oh right. Well. But that's, you know, that's a good reminder. I mean, obviously, it's not not the case for you all. But uh, there are individuals out there that are wearing masks because they're going to be uh, around someone who is immunocompromised or, or dealing with some sort of illness or disease or treatment that they just need to be extra precautious mm -hmm. about. And so, gosh, I want to I want to thank those people. Uh, for thinking of of others, and and so uh, we, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be too quick to be judgmental about those who are still wearing masks. I mean, that's just I might uh, I might just decide to wear a mask outside every winter because it it keeps my face warm and and really I like it. So I mean, I, I think you should just bring back the turtleneck and just just flip it up above. Wait, turtlenecks are are back. People wear turtlenecks. Oh, they are. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Some of our coworkers have worn turtlenecks in the office. We have coworkers that wear turtlenecks? Yeah. So anyway, so <laughs> turtlenecks are back. I could wear a turtleneck and a mask, and then my face would be extra warm. But this is just going downhill quickly. So <laughs> let's just <laughs> let's just be done talking about our culture content for now. Well, there you go. That's your look at This Week in Culture, Lindsay. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. I'll go ahead and start. Brent, you've been occupied this week with some important things within our organization. So I don't know if you've even had time to think about anything remotely entertaining. You know, we talked about Wordle on this podcast. We mentioned that Wordle was being bought by the New York Times for a low seven figures. 
And I have to just take a minute to complain about Wordle because since it has been bought by the New York Times, it appears that it is harder. I saw a gentleman uh, from the New York Times being interviewed on the Today Show about Wordle, and he assures us that it has not become harder. In fact, some of these words that are there have already been planned and that they have actually removed certain words that are obscure, like agora. (laughs) But... But there's a rumor that not everyone is playing the same word every day, which I think is true because one day you got crank, right? Oh, I was totally kidding with that. Oh, you were? Yeah. Oh, I thought it's fitting because it describes you some days. Well, no, because the the, the context was we were having a debate whether there were multiple words. And and one of our uh, teammates said, I'm almost positive because I feel like someone else I know got a different word. And so I just put that out there to say, oh, well, this was my word. And all of y'all said, no, 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 I got this other word. And it's like, well, we all had the same oh, word. Oh, it was so, all a joke. Yeah, it was just a little uh, just a little experiment to see if anybody uh, actually got a different word, which oh, they didn't. Well, they didn't. Okay, well, then maybe it's all rumors. But Wordle <laughs> has gotten harder. And in fact, as we speak, I'm on my third try. Well, I've done my third try, so I'm on my fourth. I've gotten one letter in the right place from the beginning. I've used some pretty good words, if I do say so myself. And I've gotten no other letters. So I don't have that much more to go. Something is wrong. It's not the same Wordle that Mr. Wardle made. For what it's worth, I've actually enjoyed playing it more since the New York Times has gotten it because it's no longer words like fuzzy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and no, fuzzy it's now is not cynic. from there. Right. Like that. I like that. No, it's not like it's not like fuzzy. It's like paint. Fuzzy is absurdal, which is harder. It's this is more becoming more like absurdal in my opinion. But anyway. People have no idea. There's a lot of people out there that they aren't playing Wordle. And, well, you should. and now there's probably a lot of people that won't play it because the New York Times bought it. And then well, uh, they guilt- definitely don't know Absurdal. Yeah, if they listen to the podcast, they do, because I talked about it. (laughs) Let's guilt them into playing Wordle. You should join us. Okay, so the other thing I wanted to point out, and I think I've discussed this on the podcast a a while back, but you'll need a refresher. So this week, apparently somebody named PJ O'Rourke died. Is that right? yes. I don't know who he is. Yes, that's right. Who is he, real quick? Uh, He is an author uh, and social commentator. Uh, he comes from the uh, conservative, uh, libertarian kind of background. He is a, a satirist of a cultural commentary. And some of his satire was just especially just biting. Like he he has one book that is dedicated to just eviscerating some of just the absurd things that happened in Congress. And I mean, I want to say he wrote this back in the, I think he wrote it in the back in the 80s. We'll we'll link to it in the in the show notes, but it's I mean just some of his writing was just spectacular. Well, I'm sorry that I did not know who he was. But one of our coworkers mentioned that he knew who he was because he was a constant guest star on um, the podcast or the show. Wait, wait, don't tell me, which I call what, what, say what. And uh, the reason is because I was introduced to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and that's what I want to tell all of y'all about. As you're listening to a podcast, add this to it. I was introduced to this podcast by my husband when we were dating, and it's a news show, but it is in a like a game format, and it also has comedy in there. So it's really entertaining, and they'll have guest stars who are people who you would recognize, like Tom Hanks was on there or whatever. Uh, So 
I would highly recommend it. It's very entertaining, and it will give you a little taste of the news for the day. Mm. I might even call it more entertaining than our podcast, which is really hard to imagine. For some. For some, it's hard (laughs) to imagine. One of my favorite books that P.J. Rourke wrote was On Wealth of Nations. So some of our (laughs) nerdier folks that might listen to us, Adam Smith wrote his treatise, uh, The Wealth of Nations, which was a giant uh, book. And P.J. Rourke decided to to read it for you as the, the reader and wrote his own book about it. And it is, gosh, the, the commentary in there is just fantastic, as well as providing uh, an in-depth review of classical economics. It's, it's really good. So uh, probably the thing that I wanted to talk about was what is happening at the Olympics with skating. So uh, last week, it was revealed that one of the top skaters, in fact, the top skater uh, from Russia had tested positive for a banned substance. Essentially, it is uh, something that keeps your heart calm, and it's generally something that is prescribed to those who might be over the age of 70, and she used it as a 15-year-old. It keeps you from getting dizzy. Hmm. And Interesting. Guess, guess what like they a, do in it, figure skating? They do a lot they of- They spin. Is it a beta blocker? A lot, of, twir- well, a lot of twirling, twizzling. That's what they call twizzling. it. Twizzling? Yes. And so there was a lot of controversy. As a matter of fact, it looked like she may not be able to participate in the games moving forward, but then a- some sort of high court of international sport uh, ruled that, that she could move forward. And so then she stepped back onto the ice this week and had multiple falls. And it became this big scene. So the Wall Street Journal is reporting on a 15-year-old Camila uh, Valieva stepped onto the ice here Thursday night with the expectation that she was about to inflame a drama that had already grown to Olympic proportions. She was at the center of an international doping scandal that had ruled the Beijing Olympics, and most of the world objected to her presence in the game's marquee figure skating event. Then, Valieva set off an entirely different kind of drama by stumbling in a competition she was widely expected to dominate. Her faltering performance in the free skate falling twice instead let her teammates take gold and silver. The chaotic outcome was a scorched-earth moment for women's figure skating in which concerns about drugs, allegedly abusive training, and judging were laid bare in the days leading up to Thursday's free skate. And it just became this thing because right as she was stepping off the ice, her coach, her Russian coach, was, I mean, essentially berating her. And, oof, not a good moment. Uh, for the Olympics, and and I feel bad for her. Actually, there were several experts that were suggesting because she was 15, they were openly asking questions like, was she like, was it mandated that she take this banned substance? So it, it lots of controversy, swirling, figure skating, and that just adds to the drama overall of these Olympic Games and the appropriateness of them being held in China while they are committing uh, a genocide. So it's a uh, Certainly been uh, an interesting conclusion as the Olympics begin to wrap up. Yeah, I can't imagine being under such pressure and then being berated when you walk off and you're already embarrassed enough on a national stage. It's just, it's terrible. Uh, On a side note, have you ever tried to twirl at your age and find out how dizzy you are? Oh, I get very dizzy. Yeah, it's, I don't do that anymore. It is unbelievable. Like, I used to love to go on those tire swings at school, you know, and you, they spin you around. I cannot, like, our, my daughter likes to be spun around. It is, it's like almost sickening. 
Mm. Can barely stand up. Yeah, in uh, in Chattanooga, we have a back home, my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee. We have a uh, amusement park called Lake Winnipesoka, and there's a ride there called the Tilt a Whirl. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> which like I you get in these giant those. pods yes. and they just go. Right. Uh huh. And I loved it as a kid. Uh. If I did it now, I would lose my lunch. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's awful. It is. It's just part of aging that gets you roller coasters these yeah. days. Well, Lindsay, we are just uh, we are just ending where we began, which is you and I are old. We're ending where, oh, okay. I thought this was some kind of like a, like a existential talk. Like no, we're no, ending where we began. We're, we're we ending the podcast old. where we began. It's, it's a fitting little, uh, what's the literary device? Uh, inclusio. Mm, uh, we, inclusio. We, we yes. are ending where we began, which is. We're old. You and I are old. Yeah. So, you know, welcome to our show where we we talk about how old we're getting and we bemoan all of the things that we have to face. Oh, man, we're not really that old. That's probably a good place to stop, isn't it, Brent? Yes. I hope you two It probably listeners... was five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. I hope you two <laughs> listeners are not getting old and that you don't uh, get dizzy when you twirl. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sogolit. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Thank mm-hmm. you.